Hi, I'm Billy Shore. After publishing more than 140 episodes of Ad Passion and Stir and speaking with at least 250 remarkable guests, we've created more than 70 hours of original content covering a wide range of topics, including food equity. Hunger has many different faces. You can walk down the street every day and see children playing in the playground. They're hungry. They don't know where they're going to get their next meal. They don't know if they're going to have dinner. National security. 77% of America is not fit enough to join the military. We just can't accept them. So we're relying on 23% of 18 to 26-year-olds to come in, and that reduces your recruiting pool. Overcoming adversity. Imagine a child growing up in the crack addict's home. Crack addict's home looks like hoarders. There's things everywhere, things that they can sell. Garbage is everywhere. You know, it's never been cleaned. So the floors that were once white are black. You know, now imagine a kid having to get up and go to school. And, of course, core to share our strength in the No Kid Hungry campaign, the topic of ending childhood hunger. There's a lot of poor kids out there who who don't have stable homes, they're food insecure. And schools, you know, you have this captive audience where you want to nourish them. In this first episode of a new series that we're creating at Add Passion and Stir, we're curating some of the very best content around these themes to create a new listening experience for you. We're starting with leadership. We'll hear from former Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack. Everybody in this town knows what the solution is. Everybody knows what it is. I mean, it's not, and they've known it for years. It's not like it's something new. I mean, they've known it for years, but nobody's got the courage to be able to say, you know what, at the end of the day, this is the way it's going to be. United States Senator from New Hampshire, Jeannie Shaheen. It's very disappointing to me what's happened in this country, and I think it's about leadership. Um, One of the things that I think all of us can do is to model civil discourse and respect for others, for people we don't agree with. Congressman Jim McGovern. I was an intern for George McGovern. No relation. Had a great last name. You know, everybody confuses me with him. But he headed up the Senate Select Committee on uh, Nutrition and Human Needs. And he and Bob Dole um, did a lot of um, work in terms of exposing the extent of hunger and food insecurity in the United States. And then they came together and they, you know, they made this a a bipartisan issue. Civil rights legend Hubie Jones. But that was the night that sealed my commitment to work for social justice and racial justice in this society. And that I was going to lead a purpose-driven life. I would say that was the moment I said, yeah, that's what I'm going to be about. i never forget the date, October 28, 1956. Panera founder, Ron Shake. We way too often in business focus on value creation, profit creation, um, making more money as if it's something that can happen when it's a natural outcome in our economic system of making a difference in the lives of consumers. And social change pioneer, Bill Novelli. So I'm dealing with these MBAs and I go home every night with a song in my heart because they understand that there's more than one bottom line. Sure, they may go to Google, they may go to uh, Goldman Sachs, but they're going to make a difference. They want purpose. Lead, follow, or get out of the way was a popular business mantra for the 1980s. It was the title of media mogul and CNN founder Ted Turner's biography. And although nobody knows for sure where or how the aphorism originated, it's been falsely attributed to automobile executive Lee Iacocca, to General George Patton, and even founding father Thomas Paine. But no matter where it all came from, the popularity during the 1980s of lead, follow, or get out of the way coincided with the rise of another prevailing business ethos of the time. 
point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much. Greed is good. That memorable phrase, echoed by actor Michael Douglas portraying financial executive Gordon Gekko in the 1980s hit Wall Street, reflects a leadership mindset where, to quote Ted Turner, money is the scorecard. But in our conversations with highly successful political, religious, and business leaders, we learned of alternative philosophies of leadership. Servant leadership has been articulated for millennia, and it transcends global cultures and religions. The phrase servant leader was coined by a former AT&T executive, Robert Greenleaf. He codified the concepts of servant leadership after retiring from his position as Director of Management Development at AT&T. Greenleaf offered a vision of leadership that departed from an emphasis on serving the organization or the corporation, and he inverted the paradigm of leadership. Here's how management consultant Isabel Lopez explains servant leadership. Servant leaders are driven by a desire to serve. And then, by conscious choice, that person chooses to lead. The test that Greenleaf laid out is do those served, while being served, become healthier, wiser, freer, more autonomous, and themselves then more apt to serve? And further, do they not harm the least advantaged among us? While service is one measurement of leadership, Inspiration is another. Yubi Jones is the Boston-based civil rights icon who's been the inspiration for generations in the Boston area and across the country. He spoke with us about the inspiration he received that was the catalyst for more than 60 years of leadership in the civil rights movement, the cause of equality, and advocacy for children. I went to hear Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speak at the Ford Hall Forum. It was a forum that was held every Sunday at Jordan Hall. Dr. King at that time was in the middle of the Montgomery bus boycott. And so it wasn't clear that he was going to be able to keep this appointment that he had made. And about a week before, we got the message, he's coming. And so I got myself to Jordan Hall about two hours ahead of time to make sure I got in and to make sure I got a seat because everybody wanted to see this new leader that had emerged suddenly onto the national scene. So I got into the Fort Hall Forum, into Jordan Hall, got a seat in the orchestra section. Onto the stage came Dr. King and went into this oratory that absolutely blew me away. It was basically starting with taking us to school, talking about philosophy, talking about Buber, talking about Gandhi, talking about Heidegger. He set a kind of a philosophical stage for the movement. Then he took it to political rally, and then he took it to church. And by the time I left Jordan Hall, I was so elevated that I went, when I walked down Huntington Avenue to get the bus back to Cambridge where I was living 
as a student, I felt that I was levitating. I felt like my feet weren't even touching the ground. It was crazy. It's never happened again, but I was, it was. But that was the night that sealed my commitment to work for social justice and racial justice in this society, and that I was going to lead a purpose-driven life. I would say that was the moment I said, yeah, that's what I'm going to be about. I'll never forget wow. the date, October 28, 1956. One way that the inspiration of Dr. King was made manifest in Jones' work occurred in the 1960s when Jones discovered more than 10,000 children being abandoned by the Boston public school system. Here again is U.B. Jones. Well, as a social worker, I, I worked with groups of children who were emotionally disturbed and physically handicapped for the Boston Children's Service Association. That was my first professional job, working with young people in groups who were, who were challenged. So I had a commitment to young people in terms of developing services. It was in 1968, when I was working at the Roxbury Multi-Service Center, that my social service staff came to me because they were having parents coming to them because their children were being kicked out of the Boston Public Schools with basically the school saying that the child is too disturbed or too retarded or too disabled to function in a regular classroom situation. So don't bring him or her back to school absolutely illegal. So as a result of that, these social workers said to me, look, uh, we've been having mental health evaluations of these kids, and we've found out that 85% of them are not disturbed, are not retarded, could function in a regular classroom situation if good teaching was happening and good management of kids was happening in schools. So on with that data, we went back to the schools and said, no, this child should be back in school, can function in a regular classroom situation. These are the things that you can do. And then for other kids where the schools were just too, too dangerous, we'd raise private money to send them to private schools. So these social workers landed back in my office saying, Hubie, this is a systemic problem. Do something about it. You like to jack people up. Well, go ahead and jack the Boston public school system up and, and resolve this problem. And we basically said, we are going to do a study of the problem. Out came a report a year later entitled, The Way We Go to School, The Exclusion of Children in Boston. And we found out that there were at least 10,000 students, children, who were not in school. And 7,600 of them were Latino kids because there were no bilingual programs or bicultural programs in the Boston public schools. And so they, they weren't going. And the attendance officers were not doing anything about getting them to go to school. In fact, when we, when we had a kind of a, a, a public hearing with some of these folks, the, the attendance officer, the guy who headed the attendance department, I said, we said to him, why are you not getting these kids back into school? Why aren't you doing your job? And he said, well, leave me alone. Get off my back. If you give Latino kids two minutes, they'll copulate. They're immoral. So there we heard and saw this rank racism. And so the people who were on the task force, some of these psychiatrists and others were like, whoa, what? 
And so we, as a result of that, when we finished the report, of course we weren't determined to get it implemented, uh, we had a nucleus of people who stayed on. So we got into a whole set of other issues in, as we advocated for kids. So we changed the name for the Task Force on Children Out of School to Mass Advocates for Children. Now that led, by the way, that led to the, the passage of Chapter 766, the Special Education Law in, in Massachusetts, the first in the nation to guarantee children in public schools in Massachusetts mainstream education, and if they couldn't, the child could not function in a main, main school education, they could be put into private, into private settings. And Marion Wright Edelman, who was working at the Center for Law and Education at Harvard, was inspired by what we were doing, and that led her to start the Children's Defense Fund. Two years later, at the national level, in, in, in 70, 1974, the national law was passed guaranteeing all children throughout the country guaranteed access to special education services. As the United States Senator from New Hampshire, Jeannie Shaheen has tackled some of the most profound challenges facing our nation and her state, including the opioid crisis that's crippling our nation. It's very disappointing to me what's happened in this country, and I think it's about leadership. Um, one of the things that I think all of us can do is to model civil discourse and respect for others, for people we don't agree with necessarily. You know, we have to be able to listen to each other and to figure out how we can compromise and work together. We've got to do that. That's what's in the best interest of this country. And everywhere I go in New Hampshire, probably the number one concern that people raise with me is they say, you know, why can't you all get together in Washington and work together to do what's best for the country? And we've got to get back to that. And we've got to make sure that our leaders are as good as our people in this country. And how was Senator Shaheen able to lead the way to bring resources back to her state and help her constituents in their fight against the scourge of opioids? She credits a style of leadership that first seeks common ground. Well, I think the important thing to say is that if we're going to address these issues in this country, then we've all got to take some responsibility for it and figure out how each of us can do a better job in our own lives of saying to people, let's, let's figure out how we can talk and find some common ground. Because for most of us Americans, we have more in common that, than we have that divides us. And we need to focus on that. And part of the challenge here under this president is that he has, his approach has been very divisive. And I think we need leadership that brings people together. The divisive political landscape described by Senator Shaheen was echoed by Tom Vilsack, who encountered political challenges as a governor, a senator, and as secretary of agriculture. Senator Vilsack noted the need for courage to lead, especially when trying to find solutions to hot-button issues like immigration. It's just amazing to me that there are politicians out there that want to scare people into thinking, well, geez, you don't want to have amnesty. My God, you don't want to create a pathway for legitimacy for these people. Okay, fine. Then the, the, fine them. Okay? You know, if I'm speeding down the street or if I violate a, a lot of laws today, the way I'm held accountable is I pay a financial penalty. Okay, I, I have no problem with that. Pay a financial penalty. But don't prevent these people from coming out of the shadows. Don't create a circumstance and situation where there's in, in, in a very important aspect of the economy where you have an unreliable 
workforce where you have people when they hear about ice being in the neighborhood they head for the hills I mean, you, you just can't have that i mean you and it's all because i'm afraid if i'm a democrat uh, if i vote for border security i'm going to get primaried because i'm in a district that is predominantly democrat or i'm a republican and good lord i can't possibly be for that pathway to citizenship because somebody's going to claim that i've provided amnesty and I'm taking jobs away from hardworking people in my district. At some point in time, somebody has to the political courage and say, no, that's not right. That's not true. You know it's not true. And, and at some point in time, the folks in the middle of this country have to say, you know what? We're not going to play. We're, we're not going to fall for that game. We're not playing that game. We're playing the game of getting problems solved in this country. And we're going to reward that kind of behavior, not rewarding the my way or the highway behavior. Everybody in this town knows what the solution is. Everybody knows what it is. I mean, it's not, and they've known it for years. It's not like it's something new. I mean, they've known it for years, but nobody's got the courage to be able to say, you know what, at the end of the day, this is the way it's going to be. Another political leader with whom we spoke is Jim McGovern, a congressman from Massachusetts. McGovern recalled two congressional leaders who earned his respect when they served in Congress. I was an intern for George McGovern, no relation, had a great last name, and everybody confuses me with him. They always tell me that they uh, are big supporters of my dad, and when I tell them my dad owns a liquor store in Worcester, Massachusetts, they seem a little shocked. They keep on saying, keep supporting him. But um, <laughs> but he headed up the Senate Select Committee on uh, Nutrition and Human Needs. That's and, right. Um, and he and Bob Dole um, did a lot of um, work in terms of exposing the extent of hunger and food insecurity in the United States. And then they came together and they strengthened, uh, you know, the then food stamp program and child nutrition programs and programs to help older Americans. And, you know, they made this a, a bipartisan issue. Uh, but I sat through many of those hearings and I and it, and it was some of them were heartbreaking um, to hear people who you know lived in the United States of America, the richest country in the history of the world. Who didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. And when I collected to Congress, I wanted to continue uh, uh, building on the work that uh, McGovern and Dole had done. At the time of our conversation, in advance of the 2018 midterm election, we anticipated the possibility for McGovern to become chair of the House Rules Committee. He spoke about how he hoped to emulate the leadership qualities that he admired in Senators George McGovern and Bob Dole. We shouldn't be afraid of fair fights. I mean, this is the people's house. People have different points of views. They ought to be able to bring their ideas to the floor. You know, we we can't have chaos, so we have to have some structure. But, uh, you know, if you have an idea that's legitimate and germane, you know, I mean, I'll fight you on the House floor. And if you get the most votes, you win. If, you know, you don't, I win. But we ought not to be afraid of a fair fight. I think, you know, restoring regular order so that it's, you know, so that average members have more of a say in how the... Congress works, I think we do go a long way to restoring civility and mutual respect. You would think that highly successful business leaders whose mandates are dictated by the responsibility to shareholders would have a different view of leadership than the religious, civil rights, and political leaders. But our preconceptions about this were blown away by Ron Shake, the founder and former chair of Panera Bread. This is someone who knows how to generate value for his shareholders. Under Shake's leadership, Panera is the best-performing restaurant stock of the past 20 years. It generated annualized returns in excess of 25% over the past two decades, and it outperformed the S&P 500 from July 18, 1997 to July 18, 2017, on a scale of 44 to 1. 
So how did Ron Shake lead a company to such an incredible performance at its bottom line? You may be surprised. Ron Shake is not the only highly successful business leader who feels this way. We also spoke with Bill Novelli, who co-founded and led Porter Novelli, now one of the world's largest public relations agencies. Novelli left that company to use his business leadership skills in public service. And as a professor at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University, Novelli is helping to shape the business culture of the future. I teach leadership, corporate social responsibility. I have a nonprofit management uh, course, but I'm a, I'm a happy camper. So I'm dealing with these MBAs. And I go home every night with a song in my heart because they understand that there's more than one bottom line. Sure, they may go to Google, they may go to uh, Goldman Sachs, but they're going to make a difference. And they want, you know, this is almost a cliche at this point, but I think it's absolutely true. They want purpose. They want to work in an organization that doesn't just have a profit, but it also cares about people, it cares about the planet. And so I feel really good about that. And what I want to do is I want to help them and help companies to figure out how they can make their core business purpose-oriented. In these conversations, we've learned that true leadership does not focus on the bottom line with a winner-take-all mentality. Rather, it shares a vision of service, inspiration, common ground, courage, engagement, anticipation, and purpose. I'm Billy Shore, and I hope that you've enjoyed this special edition of Add Passion and Stir. Please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app, leave a rating and a review, and don't forget to share Add Passion and Stir with your own community. Thanks so much for listening. Add Passion and Stir, Big Chefs, Big Ideas, is the podcast from Share Our Strength. I'm Billy Shore. The Share Our Strength community believes that everyone can share in the global fight against hunger and poverty, and that in these shared strengths lie sustainable solutions. Today, Share Our Strength focuses these strengths on making no kid hungry a reality in America. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall. <laughs>